Well, we've all come off the holidays, I know, and uh, you can turn to Romans chapter 12. Uh, We're going to be covering Romans chapter 12, verse 10, and just the first half of verse 10. And coming off the holidays, one of the things that stands out about the holiday season is time with the family. Uh, We all feel this from about a week before Thanksgiving until just a week after New Year's. There's a lot of time spent usually with family or attempts to spend time with family or thoughts about family. In fact, we've memorialized this in song. Some of you may or may not remember the Carpenter song, There's No Place Like Home for the Holidays. Uh, the chorus is, oh, there's no place like home for the holidays, for no matter how far away you roam, when you long for the sunshine of a friendly gaze, for the holidays you can't beat home sweet home. Uh, It's interesting, right? Family is what dominates our thoughts. And when our family isn't together, I think there are times that we can miss them just because we're not with the people that we love and care for. This morning, I want to look at a different family, another biblical reality of the family and how it relates to our church. Just look at Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Paul says this in this flow of individual commands. Paul says in 10a, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And we've talked a lot about this idea of the church in various points in this section of Romans chapter 12. And this issue is the issue of brotherly love, of love in the church. And I think many of us here, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've had a season in a church where you were injured. All of us, I think, have had times in our Christian life, if we've been Christians for some years, where we have been hurt by some situation in the church, where maybe you have not been loved well. Uh, Perhaps you've experienced pain and hurt and mistreatment by other Christians, whether they were professing or real Christians, you've hurt in those situations. And I think many of us have felt that. But in this passage, Paul is giving us an instruction, and this beautiful little command, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, is filled with truth, filled with truth for us. And so what I want to do this morning is just consider this. I want to look at what it looks like, what it looks like, and what it results in, what brotherly love looks like and what it results in, those two pieces. So look at me at point one this morning, family language, family language. Now, just like the previous command, Paul is using very strong language. If you remember, when he says, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, he uses very graphic language. The same is true in this little command. He uses extremely strong language, and we want to look at that very specifically. And so look with me at point A, the closest family. If you look at that little phrase in Romans 12.10, the the literal phrasing in Greek is, is something like this, in brotherly love toward one another, love. That's the literal phrasing. Uh, the New American Standard says, uh, says let love, uh, he's, it says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And the ESV maybe does a little bit better job. It says, love one another with brotherly affection. Well, what is affection? Just love, right? So love one another with brotherly love. And there's, there's two words that both mean love in this little phrase. One is Philadelphia, which we know, and the other is philostorge. And both of those words mean that idea of love. But what's interesting is that both of these words in secular Greek literature are only ever used of immediate blood family. There's no usage of either of these words in any extant Greek literature of any kind of bond besides blood bond of families. Nowhere else is it ever used that way. Paul uses this intense, strong language of family bonds in reference to the church for a reason. 
He's using this language to tell us that the bonds of the family in the church are so close that they are the same as the bonds in blood families. They're the same. And in fact, if you think about the family of the church, the bonds that we share as Christians actually transcend the bonds that we share with our blood relatives. The bonds that we share as the church transcend the bonds that we share with our blood relatives. Now, if you're very close to your family, that might feel odd to hear, but it's true. Why is it true? Well, for lots of reasons. Now, of course, God is worried about physical families too. There are commands for fathers and for mothers and for children. He wants us to love one another within our physical families. But at the end of the day, our spiritual family is eternal. It is eternal. It transcends our physical family. In heaven, there is no marrying or giving in marriage, right? There are no relationships such as father and son. All of that is equalized, and we are all just brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, ultimately, our spiritual family transcends our physical family. It is a higher thing. It's a higher thing. And therefore, it is a more important reality from an eternal sense. Now, why do I say that we're a family? Why do I say that we're a family? Well, we know that our, result, that, that our salvation has resulted in our position in the family of God. Look with me at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Paul here is describing our position in Christ because of the Spirit of God. And in verse 14, he says something fascinating. He says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. He tells us, if we're led by the Spirit of God, if we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us because of our salvation, because of our regeneration, we are the children of God. And then he says, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit of God is in us, and that spirit is not a spirit of slavery where we're in terror of God. No, the Spirit of God that dwells in us is a spirit that is telling us that we are the children of God. In verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we also may be glorified with him. What's Paul saying? He's saying you are united to one another through Christ under the fatherhood of God. We are that. And if you just look over in verse 29 of Romans chapter 8, look what he says there. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Listen to this language. So that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. What are we, what's God telling us in Romans chapter 8? That we have God as a father and we are brothers of who? Jesus. Jesus Christ is your brother in the truest spiritual sense. No wonder the spiritual family transcends everything. Christ is our brother. It's interesting. This, this idea is memorialized in song. We're actually going to sing it at the end. In joyful, joyful, we adore thee. And the second verse says, God our Father, Christ our brother, all who live in love are thine. What, what's, the, what's the hymn writer saying? He's saying God is our Father. He's over us. And we are brothers and sisters. We are united together into this spiritual bond, this reality. We are the family of God. We are. 
What does that mean? It means that each one of you has countless brothers and sisters. Countless brothers and sisters. I am your brother. I am. If you're a Christian here, I am your brother. You may or may not like me. That's okay. I'm still your brother, right? It's true. And you are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is true for every single person here who's been regenerated by the Spirit of God. But what does that do to our love for one another? You know, family can sometimes be complex, right? And maybe this family is complex as well. But what does that produce in us? And this is point B on your outline, spiritual reality. The fact that we're family with one another means more than just a bond. It means more than just a connection. It also means that we love each other. This is interesting. You do not have to, as a Christian, manufacture love for other Christians. You don't have to. You don't have to sort of work on being loving toward other Christians. It's not something that you have to do. Why? Because the natural inclination of the regenerated heart is to love the family of God. The natural inclination of the Spirit of God in us, the Spirit that has adopted us, that dwells in those that are around us, is to bond us together, to bind us together in love. That is what the Spirit is constantly doing. God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, lives in each regenerated heart. And because the Spirit of God is in your heart, you love your brothers and sisters. It's a mark of regeneration that we love one another. In fact, just look over in Hebrews 13.1. Turn over there with me. We're going to look at a lot of texts this morning because this shows up everywhere in the New Testament. But turn over to Hebrews chapter 13. Look at Hebrews 13.1 there. The author of Hebrews here is giving a list of commands, sort of like Paul is in Romans chapter 12. And the very first command that he gives is, let the love of the brothers continue. Let the love of the brothers continue. And that word translated love of the brothers is just that single word in Greek, Philadelphia. It's the same word that we just used, in, that we just looked at in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. And what the author is saying here is fascinating. Notice what he says. Let the love of the brothers, what? Not be worked on, not be manufactured. Let it, what? Continue. That word in Greek is to remain or to abide. Let love abide. Let it remain. What is he saying? He's saying it's already there. It's already, it's already existing in the hearts of the regenerate. Every one of us who has the Spirit of God has love in their heart. So what does it mean to let it remain? It means don't do anything to hinder what is already being produced in the regenerated heart. Don't break the bonds of love that exist between brothers and sisters. Don't hurt the love that we have for one another as Christians. Everyone who knows Jesus has brotherly affection for the brothers and sisters. Everyone who knows Jesus has Philadelphia, the love of the brothers for their brothers and sisters. They, they do because their heart is new. And the Spirit of God that dwells in them through the gospel is producing this in them. Look at 1 John. Flip over there with me. 1 John chapter 4. Look what... John says, you know, John's the apostle of love. <laughs> he really goes after this. Look at verse 20. It says, if someone says, I love God, and he, I'm sorry, chapter 4, 1 John 4, verse 20. Sorry, I just said 1 John. I didn't tell you which chapter. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. It says, if someone loves God, if someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. What, what's he saying? 
The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. What's he telling us? He's telling us that love is the natural impulse of the regenerate heart. Verse chapter 5, verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. If you believe that Jesus is Christ, if he's Lord, if you're a believer, you, are, you have been born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the one who is born of him. What is he saying? If, if you've been born of God, then what? You will love others who are born of God. You will. It's in you because the Spirit of God dwells in you. This is such a cool thing. The Spirit creates a love for the brothers and sisters in the heart at the moment of regeneration. And this is cool because it works everywhere, doesn't it? This is a global reality. I don't know how many of you have ever been on a short-term missions trip. We were missionaries in India for two and a half years. And I can tell you, we are totally culturally different from everything in India. Totally culturally different. But we love those brothers and sisters. We love them. And they love us. It's not something we had to manufacture. It was there because we had the Spirit of God in us. Yes, is there a language barrier? Absolutely. When there's a translator, it, fix, it fixes itself. We love one another. And if you've ever been overseas on a short-term missions trip, you feel this. You're only there for a week or two weeks, and you realize, I love these people. Why do I? And they love me. This is a crazy reality, isn't it? That's partly, that's one of the main reasons to do short-term missions. So this love that we have as brothers and sisters, it's, it's global, but it's also unprejudiced. It's unprejudiced. It's what keeps churches from being cults. It transcends every single cultural barrier. It transcends every cultural barrier. There isn't a person in the world that isn't acceptable and worthy of the love of the brothers and sisters in Christ. There's nobody. Race, social class, previous sins, temperament, personality quirks, oddities, all of those things should never keep us from loving one another. It is an unprejudiced love that the Spirit of God puts in us. We love everybody who's a brother and sister. Why? Because we have the Spirit of God, and they have the Spirit of God, and the externals of who they are don't change the spiritual reality of what's happened on the inside of them. We love them by nature. And lastly, this love that we have as brothers and sisters is perpetual. Love between true believers has a profound force with it. It, it always, it's always pushing itself forward because it's born out of the Spirit of God who dwells in the heart. Uh, nothing can stop it. Distance can't stop it. You know this. When you've been close with another believer and you've been far from them for a period of time, you know, you have this very close-knit bond of love between a fellow brother or sister, and then suddenly they're taken away from you like Joel and Jason are about to be. Very painful for all of us. <laughs> And then you see them again, what happens? That love is instantly rekindled. Nothing breaks that. It's still there. And when you think of them, you think of them with affection in your heart for them. Distance can't stop it. Suffering can't stop it. When you hurt, you, it doesn't stop that you love that person. It doesn't change it. And, and even offenses against us can't stop the love that we have for the brothers and sisters. Why? Nothing can stop it because it is the force of the Spirit of God who dwells in us that is pushing it out of us. This is the heart of a truly regenerated Christian. Love exists between us. So what does that look like? Look at point two with me, family bonds. Family bonds. And there are a number of things that we could talk about here. In fact, like I said, there are 
a ton of passages that deal with brotherly love, all the one another's, all the things that we could consider when we talk about this. And so when I read this text, I was thinking, what are we going to do to talk about all of these things? But I want to summarize them, and I want to start in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So flip back there with me. Kevin read this this morning as our call to worship. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul, in this letter is writing to a church that's in the middle of suffering and some confusion, and yet they are a good church. They're healthy. In chapter 4, verse 9, he says something amazing. He says, now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Why? For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. What is that? That's exactly what we just talked about, right? God is teaching us to love each other. You don't need a letter because you've already got it in your heart through the Spirit, And he says to the Thessalonian church, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brothers who are in Macedonia. And even as I was writing this sermon, I I was thinking to myself, this is the best text for this, (laughs) for me to use. I don't feel like I need to write or, or preach this sermon to you. I don't need to because you love each other. You love each other. And I see that. I watch it as a pastor. You're a joy to be, you, you as a church are a joy to be the pastor over. You love each other. And you're good at it. I, I'm really good at it. I, we see it all over the place. And so even as I was writing this sermon, I thought, man, that's so beautiful. That's exactly what the gospel produced in the church in Thessalonica. And that's what it's producing in you as a church. So it's a joy for me. But Paul says this in verse 10. He says, Even indeed you practice it toward all the brothers who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, to excel still more. <laughs> and so what we're going to talk about now in the ways that we practice love, what family, look, family love looks like, it isn't because you're not doing it. It's because we can do it more, right? We can excel still more in this thing that the Spirit of God has put in us. Maybe there are ways that we as a church can just do better at this than we're already doing. So I want to look at these not because we're not doing this well. So just be clear that that's not the point of this section. We're do, I'm, I'm looking at these because I want us to do even better for God's glory as a church together. So look at point A with me. We love like Jesus. We love like Jesus. When we think of brotherly affection in the church, we should think of our best brother. <laughs> Who's the first brother? Who's the best at this? Christ is the best at this. Turn over to John chapter 13 with me. John chapter 13. This text is amazing. He's in the upper room in the last moments of his life, in the last hours of his life, and he's talking to the disciples, and and Judas leaves, and then you have him giving these commands, and in verse 34 of John chapter 13, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. That's an amazing sentence. Why is that a remarkable sentence? Well, there's a lot of things there, but the most important thing is, how are we supposed to love each other? What should love look like among brothers and sisters in Christ? And the answer is, we should look like Jesus in our love for each other. We should look like Jesus. That is the standard that we have been given. He says, love each other like I love you. Now, how has Christ loved us? How has Christ loved us? Maybe the better question is, how has Christ not loved us? His love is amazing to us, isn't it? Aren't you the recipient of the love of Christ? Don't you know the glories of the love of Jesus Christ for you? If you're here and you're a Christian, you know that's true. It's beautiful when you think of the love of Christ for you. Think through this with me. 
Think of the love of Christ. His love was initiating. His love was initiating. Jesus loved us when we were his enemies. <laughs> he loved us when we were his enemies. He came to you in your sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet, what? Sinners, Christ died for us. When you were in rebellion, when you shook your fist at the king of kings, Christ loved you and came to you. He initiated love toward you. And not only did he initiate it in coming to you, but he initiated it in taking your sins off of you. He, he forgave you for every sin you could ever do. Your hell, Christ took on. Isn't that amazing? He took your hell off of you, not because you wanted that initially, but because you needed it. He initiated that in you. And then he gave you his perfect life. He gave you his perfect life so that you would be part of the family of God. His love was initiating. Second, his love was and is continuous. <laughs> Think of this. His love was and is continuous. His love for you never changes. On the day that you became a Christian, God loved you the same as he loves you now. And on the day when you stand in front of him in heaven, perfected with no sin on you anymore, his love will be the exact same as it is right now. He could never love you more than he does right now. God loves you infinitely at this moment. So his love is initiating. His love is continuous. And third, his love was impartial. Now think of this for a moment. Jesus doesn't just love people that love him back well. Have you noticed that? The longer I've been a Christian, the more I'm convinced. I am a great sinner. And I need a savior every moment. Jesus isn't partial in his love for me. He, he doesn't say, John, you get a C today. We'll see how you do tomorrow. And if you fail, I'm going to kick you out of the family. He doesn't just love those who embrace him. Jesus loves impartially. He sets his love on people and he does not change. His love is constant toward those whom he has chosen to love. And so when we think about our love in the church, think of this. Our love should look the same. Jesus says, love the way I love. Well, how did Jesus love? He was initiating in his love. He came to us when we were his enemies. He, he came to us. And so what should we do as Christians for our brothers and sisters? We should come to one another in love, right? We shouldn't wait and say, well, no one talks to me. I, no one's loving me. What should we do? We should go and love them, love one another. That's what we're called to do. And we should love continuously. We should love continuously. It shouldn't change, right? Our hearts shouldn't change toward one another. They should be continuous in their love for one another. And our love should be impartial. It should be impartial. We shouldn't just love those who love us. We should love everyone the same. We shouldn't just love those who, who give something back to us, those who, who come back to us. We should love, in fact, those who don't do those things for us. In fact, Christ said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 through 48, if you love those who love you, what more do you do than the Gentiles? 
In other words, what more do you do than unbelievers? Unbelievers love those who love them, but we as Christians are called to love everyone the same, all of our brothers and sisters the same. So we ought to be completely impartial in our love for one another. So our love should look like Christ. It should be initiating. It should be continuous. It should be impartial. Now, this is one of those commands that I think we're quick to shrug off. It's easy for us to just sort of dismiss this as impossible. Well, I'm not Jesus. I'm a sinner. I can't do this. How am I supposed to manage that? But what does Jesus say? It's not just tongue. It's not, it's not, he's not just using words. It's not just hyperbolic. He's not just saying, well, just try your very best. No, what does he say? He says, love like I love. And we can do it. Why can we do it? Why can we love the way Christ loved? Because it's not us. Who is loving the brothers and sisters in us? Christ is loving the brothers and sisters in us. Why? Because we have the Spirit of God and Jesus dwells inside of us. And so if we're walking in the Spirit, the first fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. Love for one another. That's what ought to be born out of our hearts. So the first way we can love better is by loving like Jesus. Now I want to look at three more, and this one's sort of, that one's sort of an umbrella one, and the next three will sort of take those apart. Even though there are lots, these are the ones that I wanted to look at most. So the second one we want to look at is in point B, in service to the conscience of others. Turn to Galatians chapter 5 with me. Galatians chapter 5. Look at verse 1. Paul says this, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. (laughs) That's a beautiful verse. What's he saying? Jesus set you free for freedom. You have freedom in Christ. If 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 there is no command against something in the Bible, you are free to do it. And we want to defend the freedom of the conscience. It is so crucial that we do that. The conscience is free. We, we are free to do what it is that is in the Bible. That is not, I mean, that is not specifically named in the Bible. And that goes to everything. We're free in all the areas of conscience. That's a glorious thing. You're completely free, what you want to do in all of the areas that the Bible doesn't mention. You're free with movies. You're free with music. You're free with food, with drink, with vaccines, with all sorts of things. You are free in Christ. Christ has set you free. You don't need to worry that God will cast you off because of those things. But look down in verse 13. Look what Paul says. It says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Same idea. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But what? Through love in the heart, serve one another. And what's Paul saying? He's saying, don't use your freedom, that freedom that you've been given, all this freedom that you have as a Christian in Christ, don't use that freedom as a way to indulge your flesh. No, don't do that. That's the worst thing you could do, right? He says you're free, free to what? Free to worship God and free to what else? Free to serve others. Look what he says. Don't turn it into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve each other. The question that love asks in the heart is this. How can I best use my freedom in these areas to help other Christians? 
How can I best use my freedom in these areas to help other Christians? Listen, love does not condemn others for their choices. Love does not condemn others for their choices. Love makes choices for itself and then protects the freedom of others and their freedom to choose. That's what love does with these issues. Look what he says in verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. I don't know how many of you spend time on social media in the Christian sphere, but if you spend any time on social media in the Christian sphere, you know what marks Christianity in our current era. Biting and devouring. Biting and devouring is what marks the Christian sphere around us. And Paul says, listen, don't use your freedom to do that. Don't use your freedom to do that. Instead of that, through love, serve one another. Care for one another. Support one another's freedoms. Care for one another in these areas that are not necessarily named in the Bible. Serve each other in this way. Now again, I, I think we do well at this. I'm not saying it because I think we need, you need to hear this in any way. But I just want to encourage you to continue to excel still more in that area. To serve one another with the freedoms that God has given you. And so we are called to love like Jesus and we are called to use our freedom in Christ to serve each other, to serve the consciences of one another. There's a third one. Look at point C here in quietly providing. And go back again to 1 Thessalonians with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we already looked at verses 9 and 10, and Paul has told them, I don't even need to write this letter to you because you're doing so well, right? You're doing so well. You're serving each other. You're loving one another. And then he says, you should excel still more. But if you notice at the end of verse 10, it's not a period. He doesn't say, you, will excel, you should excel still more and now I'm going to talk about a new topic. He says, you should excel still more. Now, verse 11, what's the next thing that he's going to talk about? Paul tells us what it looks like to excel still more in love. What does that look like? Look what Paul says in verse 11. Look with me there. He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. <laughs> That's an amazing sentence. Here's your ambition. Lead a quiet life. That sentence, that word quiet there, it just means orderly. Live a life of order, of peace, of sort of tranquility, of respectability. Live a life that looks like that. Just live a quiet life. That's what Paul wants them to do. And then he says, and attend your own business. What does that mean? What does it mean to attend your own business? It doesn't mean do the business that you're in, like, you know, continue on in your workplace. He's talking about your own business, your, your own life. What is he saying? He's saying, mind your own business. <laughs> How do you excel still more? You live a quiet, orderly, respectful life, and you mind your own business. That's what we're supposed to do as Christians. It's an amazing verse, isn't it? Here's your ambition. Live a quiet, orderly life, mind your own business. That's literally what Paul is saying here. And then the third one, what does he say? Work with your hands just as we commanded you. Now, there was a problem in the Thessalonican church. People weren't working and they were just coming and eating the food that the church was providing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We know that. Paul says, listen, just work. And when he, when he says work with your hands, he doesn't mean they're all tradesmen per se, though it's an ancient culture. What he's saying is just provide for your own family. 
provide for your own needs so that you can also meet the needs of others. That's what Paul thinks excelling still more in love looks like. Those three things, live respectfully, don't be meddlesome in things that don't belong to you, and work hard. That's what it means to love each other. And why would he say those three things? Look what he says in verse 12. He says, so that, and what's the purpose of living like this? You will behave properly toward outsiders. People outside the church will say, these people are very peaceful. They live orderly lives. They mind their own business. They're working hard. That's good. The world around us will say, they're not biting and devouring each other. They're just loving each other and living peaceful lives. That's a beautiful thing. And then he says this, and not be in any need. You as a church will have need of nothing. Why? Because everyone's working hard and we're all sharing with one another, caring for each other. There's no needs that are in the church. Why? Because we are now loving one another in this way. So what does Paul say? You think, how do I love people? What should I do? Paul gives us some marching orders here, doesn't he? Just live a quiet life. This is your ambition. Live a quiet life and, and don't meddle in other people's affairs and work hard with your hands so that you can provide for the needs of your family and the needs of the saints. That's how you excel still more. Now that sounds very simple, doesn't it? That is not simplistic. That is hard. <laughs> Because you hear something and there's news and rumors, things happen, all sorts of stuff can happen all around us and pretty quickly it's easy for us to begin to be meddlesome and to start to presume and question and all the things that can happen in our hearts. Paul says, don't do that. Here's your ambition, just hunker down, live a normal life, care for your family, care for the needs of the saints. That's what it looks like. That's how we excel still more. So Paul, the authors of Scripture, God, he wants us to love like Christ He wants us to love by serving the consciences of others. And third, he wants us to love by quietly providing. And last but not least uh, is is letter D, in forgiveness. In forgiveness. And I think this one goes without saying. Uh, Flip over to 1 Peter with me. 1 Peter chapter 4. And again, every one of these is sort of in this list of commands. You see this over and over again in the scriptures, all the different authors, all the different writers, these list of commands that come along. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, in verse 8, he says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. (laughs) Love covers a multitude of sins. Now, What do we know about the church? What do we know about any family generally, and particularly about the church as a family? No doubt in anyone's mind, what will we do? We will sin against each other. We just will. We just will sin against each other. And in fact, I can say with some certainty that I have probably sinned against some of you in this room right now. Some of those I know about, some I don't know about. I I have because I'm a sinful person. I'm a sinful person. But you're still my brothers and sisters, and the Spirit is still seeking to produce that love in us in the same way that Christ's love has been poured out to us. And yet, what do I have to do with those offenses? And I would say with some certainty that some of you here have been sinned against by others that are here. So what do we do when we sin against each other? How does brotherly love respond to sin in the church? Peter tells us, doesn't he? Just keep loving each other. Look what he says. Keep fervent in your love for one another. That word means eager or earnest, and it comes from a root word that means to reach out for something, to to stretch out. He's telling us to extend, extend ourselves, to stretch out in love for one another. Why? Because ultimately that will produce what? It will produce forgiveness. It produces a covering over a multitude of sins. 
When you love someone, you forgive them. That's the first inclination of the heart. You remember this, you guys, when you were dating and your wife did something to you, or you ladies, when you're, when you're fiancé at the time, did something to you. How hard was it to forgive the one you're engaged to? It takes a moment, doesn't it? And when you're first dating, they offend you, and you, you're not even sure they offended you. You're like, well, maybe, I, I don't know. I'm okay with it. I've already forgiven them. It's done. Right? It, it goes away so quickly. Why? Because in that moment, you're full of love for that person. And then you get married. Five years later, they do something. They sneeze in the wrong direction, and it's much harder to forgive, isn't it? It's much harder to forgive. What happened? What happened is not, obviously there's lots of complexities there, but what happened is not that the person's changed. What happened is that our hearts have changed. When our hearts are full of love for a person, it's so easy to forgive them, isn't it? It's not hard, it's simple. But when we struggle to forgive, what are we doing? We're just revealing that we're not actually loving them. And so Peter says, listen, keep fervent, reach out in your love for each other. Why? Because it covers all those sins, <laughs> covers a multitude of sins. And you know this, brothers and sisters, we know this. It is so easy to sin, isn't it? It's so easy for us to fail. When someone sins against us, it is very easy for us to stay in a place in our hearts of unforgiveness, and we start to close our hearts toward one another. Our hearts get hard. There's this root of bitterness that springs up inside of us. We start to close our hearts against one another, and then what, if, what ultimately will happen? Eventually, we just drift away, don't we? Eventually, we just leave the church. We just leave because we don't want to address it, and we refuse to forgive it, and so we just drift away, and eventually we go. But Peter's answer is, no, that's wrong. That's wrong. What should we do? We should love one another and therefore what? Cover the sin. Love covers a multitude of sins. If you've been sinned against, let me just encourage you, your call is to forgive that person from the heart. The church will sin against itself. We will sin against one another. And even though God has united us in the family and even though we've been regenerated and even though we have the spirit of God in us that is pressing out love from us, we will sin against each other. And what are we called to do? We're called to forgive one another. And the only way to truly forgive one another is to do it from the heart. We have to love one another if we're going to forgive each other. And that's not easy. That's not easy when you've been sinned against and you've been hurt. It's not easy. It's not easy to lay down the offenses because justice would tell you, hate that person. They've hurt me. But Christ would tell us what? forgive them. It's not you, it's me. And so Peter says, forgive one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. Now, as you forgive that person, you may need to go to them and confront that sin, right? The Bible doesn't say just forgive them and just forget it. You might have to go and confront that person. But if you go and confront that person in anger from a spirit of unforgiveness, what will happen? They won't hear a word you're saying, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. That's what we're called to do. And so you might need to help a person turn from their sin, but that has to happen after forgiveness has already taken place, after your love for them is restored. 
And listen, especially at a time when there are so many divides in the evangelical church, let's not be like that. Let's not be like that. Let's extend ourselves in love for each other and cover sins with forgiveness. You will certainly sin against each other. I will certainly sin against you, and and I'm certain you'll sin against me, though I don't know anything in my heart at this moment. I'm, I'm certain that will happen. But what should we do? We need to forgive one another. If we don't, listen, here's what happens. We end up just in an echo chamber of our own opinions. We'll not be walking in the Spirit with joy. We won't be living and loving the way Christ lived and loved. And that's just a few of the commands to love one another. (laughs) To get the picture, right? Brotherly family love is a love like Jesus loved. And when we love like Jesus loved, what do we do? We serve the consciences of others. We quietly and unassumingly provide for our own needs and the needs of the saints. And third, we love in forgiveness. This is what love looks like. This is what love does when it happens in our hearts through the work of God and the Spirit. The last thing I want to do is look at what love does. What does love do among brothers and sisters? And this is point three, family results. Now, again, there are a ton of answers here, and and we don't have time to cover all the answers, but the overarching category is that God is glorified when we love each other as brothers and sisters. God gets honor when we do this. When the church gathers together, especially in times and seasons when everything in the world around us is falling apart and fracturing, when the church unites in love, God gets glory. He does. And there's two ways that that happens. The first one is under point A, in unity. In unity. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 4 with me. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul here in Ephesians, Ephesians is like a mountain. Chapters 1 through 3 are all the doctrine, and chapters 4 through 6 are all the application. In chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, Paul now, 1, 2, and 3, Paul is calling them to walk in a manner worthy of what they've been called. They've received this gospel promise, and now God is Paul is calling them to walk in a manner that's worthy of that gospel. And in verse 2, he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. (laughs) Now, we've already sort of talked about that, right? That idea of humility and patience and gentleness, showing tolerance for one another, all of that's what's coming out of us in love. And then Paul says this, verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Again, we have the same idea, being diligent to what? Not to manufacture the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, not to create this, but to what? To maintain it, right? To keep it alive, to keep it going. So Paul says, showing tolerance and love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Our job is to maintain unity. Obviously, there are many differences in conscience, right? Many differences in conscience. Even in this room, there are countless differences in how you apply these texts of Scripture and your conscience. And that's okay, right? It's for freedom that that Christ has set us free. So you have freedom to apply conscience in countless different ways. So what do we need unity on? Well, for the sake of time, we won't look at all the verses, but from verse 4 through verse 6, he tells us what we need unity on. Look at there. He says, verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. You have the spirit of God and the church and the reality of heaven. Verse 5, and about Christ, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, our union with him. And verse 6, one God and Father who is all, who, 
of all who is over all and through all and in all. We have the Trinity and all that they mean as unity that binds us together. Our job is to maintain that love by loving one another, maintain unity by loving each other. And when we do that, God is honored. God gets glory in the church when we do that. There's one more result that comes from this. Turn back to John chapter 13 with me. John chapter 13. This is the last thing. In John chapter 13, we just looked at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. But look at verse 35 with me. This is fascinating. He says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And what's he saying there? All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for each other. He's not saying, I mean, though, that, though it's true, people will say, oh, you must be a Christian, you love other Christians. That's true, but that's not what he's saying there. What's he saying? When the world looks at the church and they see that we love each other, when they see that we have forgiveness for one another, when they see that we have a heart that serves one another, what will they know? They will know that Jesus is real. They will know that Jesus is God. The only way for them to see that is to see us loving one another. When when people from every tribe and tongue and language and social class and political bent and interest group, when the church comes together as a church and we love each other, who can do that? Who can unite Twitter? Nobody can unite Twitter. But when the church comes together and we love one another, what's happening there? We are proving that Jesus is God. We're proving that Jesus is God. God is massively glorified in this, and the world knows that God is real. Why? Because we're all different, but we're all loving one another. Let me just say this here. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, the thing that you have spent your entire life looking for is this thing. It's the love that we have in the church. The thing that you've spent your entire life craving for is found in the church. The reason for that is because it's found in Christ. If you're here and you're not saved, the thing that you are craving is love. And when people crave love, they search for it in, like the song says, all the wrong places. (laughs) But the thing that we need is found in Christ. The place to find love is in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. And then to bind yourself together with his people and love them. That's what it means to be fulfilled. You can't find it any other place. But if you're here and you are a Christian, listen, this is what you have through the Spirit of God. You say, well, I struggle to love. It's hard for me. What do we do? What do we do? Because I guarantee that each one of us here struggles to love. There are times when it's hard, isn't it? And we have brothers and sisters, and I told you at the beginning of the sermon, this is what a regenerate heart does. And you say, well, I struggle to do that. I don't like to forgive when I've been wronged. I don't like to love the way Jesus loves. So what should I do? And the answer, I think it's fitting that we're taking communion today. The answer is what we sang before the sermon started. What do we have to do? How do we rekindle love in our hearts? The only way to do that is to go back, to go back to the love of God for us. 
Listen, we cannot love one another as brothers and sisters just because we think we should or just because we want to. The only way to do this is by faith. We must know and see the love of Christ for us and from that will come a love for one another. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, get saved. (laughs) Come to Christ. Receive what you've longed for in his love and forgiveness of your sins. And if you're here and you are a Christian, listen, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. He died on a cross for your sins. He shed his blood for your failures in love. He shed his blood for your failures in forgiveness. He loves you. And communion is a joyful confession that this is true, that Jesus died for my sins, that his body was broken for me, that his blood was shed for me. And when we confess that in communion, we also confess that we are one body in him and that we have one spirit that unites us and one father who is over us. So when we take communion, let it remind you of the love that you have from God and the love that you have in God's family. That's why we call it communion. (laughs) Not just you and God, but us in communion with one another. So the men are going to come forward and the band will come up and play. What I want to do is just give you a few moments here just to think on these things. I think it's easy for us to get distracted by the cares of the world and everything that's happening around us. It's very easy to get distracted by those things. But I want you to remind yourself again of what Christ has done for you, about his love for you, and to remind yourself again that the Spirit of God is in you and that you have been united with a church family. As we pray over these things and think over them, just remind yourself of these things. And if there are areas where you've sinned and you're struggling, what should you do? <laughs> Well, confess those things to God and receive forgiveness again from him. Receive the blood of Christ to cleanse your heart of the areas where you haven't loved well. And then receive it again with a free and clear conscience. As the men are going to come forward, the band can come up, you guys can come on up. Just give you a few minutes to pray and then I'll pray and then uh, we'll take communion together. Just take a moment and just pray and be with the Lord. Father in heaven, Lord, we uh, thank you for Christ. Lord, thank you for the love that we have from him. Lord, if we ever doubt or wonder what our love should look like, Lord, we know you've answered that once and for all in your son. Lord, you've given us the perfect example of brotherly love because he is our brother and he has loved us perfectly. Lord, whether we know and see that at this moment, Lord, is entirely an issue of faith. Lord, I pray that you would help us now. Lord, as we take communion, fill our hearts with this reality, Lord, that the reality that Jesus loves us, Lord, that he came into the world and he died on a cross for our sins, Lord, that he's given us his perfect life, and Lord, that death could not hold him, that he's been raised again from the dead, that he's alive even now, and that his spirit, your spirit dwells within us, Lord, because of those realities, Lord, I pray that it would produce in us this fruit of love for one another. Lord, I thank you for our church. I thank you that this is what's happening all around us. Lord, that this is the the work that you're doing through the Spirit. 
Lord, I pray that you would help us to excel still more, that we wouldn't stop doing this, that we wouldn't think that things are good, though they are, Lord, but that we would do more, that we would love each other better. Lord, I know there are countless ways that this can be applied. Lord, I pray that you would produce it in us. Lord, fill our hearts with joy in Christ, even as we take communion this morning, and let us confess Jesus loves us. We've been united together, and we love one another. Lord, we thank you for your son. In his name we pray, amen.